Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Warning. Today's episode contains descriptions of crimes being committed against children. Please proceed with caution. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. And my dad said, I'm going to kill the motherfucker. And Mike's like, Gary, look, I understand. That's how most parents respond. And that was their reaction. It was to, to cry, to be upset, and to say he was going to kill him. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I'm sitting kind of, sort of close to Billy, and we're both very far away from Alexis. I feel like this is the first time that Billy and I are both in the same city, which is Phoenix, and Alexis is just on her lonesome. Odd woman out, alone in Burbank. Alone in Burbank. Mm -hmm. That sounds like the title of a rom-com. Alone in Burbank's pretty good. That you might be starring in. Mm-hmm. May or may not be. <laughs> um, so today is part one of a two-part story. So if you are the type of person that likes to binge, then you got to hold off until next Wednesday. But for everybody else, we're going to get into it in a second. But first, I got to know, what day is it today, Billy? Today is August 4th, and that means it's National Chocolate Chip Cookie Day. My favorite day. Wait, before we delve into that day, it's two days post the birthday of Billy Jensen. And we're actually recording it on his real birthday. We are recording it on Billy's birthday. And yes. it's sad that we can't be together. I know. It's sad we can't be together. We just discussed what we're going to do to celebrate once we are together. And that um, is what? We're going to Benihana to get the surf and turf. <laughs> and get we a want shrimp the lobster and the flamingot. I want... <laughs> Okay, my dream is for them to try to fling a shrimp in Billy's mouth and it hits him in the eye. Oh my god! <laughs> and then they're like, "Sorry," and then they make him the vol- the the onion volcano to yes. make up for it. Yes, you can probably make them pay them twenty bucks and ask them to do that. I think I know, okay. but then and then you could sue them because they burned your eye off, and that's, then you might just have to wear too. an eye patch. But that's okay, dude. That'll add to your mystique. It's a different look. <laughs> All right. Well, it is also. Uh, Wait, sorry. We have to go back to the National Chocolate Chip Cookie Day because that is my favorite cookie and cookies are my second favorite food in the entire world. So this is really my day. I, after knowing Jack for, you know, over a decade, maybe 15 years now, I've, I've seen her show up to like events when I say events, I mean my house. She oh, she's <laughs> had so many cookies with her, like over the years, like in a little baggie or like in a little oh. like cr- like bakery bag. She's like, oh, I saw a cookie and I want to try it. Like she loves 
cookies, this woman. I went through a point in high school when I was eating six Subway chocolate chip cookies every single day. Wow. It was right Subways, after puberty. <laughs> Subways are really good. McDonald's are good. My mom mm-hmm. used to like, I used to come home in the morning or wake up in the morning, I guess, and there'd be like, you know, McDonald's cookies wrappers around. I'm like, what the hell, mom? You're, I don't know where it goes because she eats cookies and she's like a rail thin, but good for you, mom. Oh, they're so delicious. I'm so going to delicious. get some crumble cookies later, which anybody, I think, I don't know if they're anywhere outside of Phoenix, but they're honestly the best cookie I've ever had in my life. So mm-hmm. that's how I'm going to be celebrating. Hell yeah. What other okay. days, Billy? It's assistance dog day. Oh, like CLI yeah. dogs and service dogs. Service and dogs and everything. Dogs. Actually, at the Phoenix airport, I saw maybe seven of them being trained. Oh, yeah. they're so sweet. And they were so earnest and they were all like, we're going to do this. I love that so much. Such sincerity. Yeah. Like none of them are malicious. That mm. That's the thing. You can rest assured. There's no uh, power tripping dog trying to become a drug sniffing <laughs> yes. dog. Like they're just like here to please. They were picked. They're like, it didn't, I didn't choose this life. It chose me. Yes. And I'm going to do, do my best with like a waggy tail and toe. There definitely aren't any psychopath dogs, which is really delightful. That's right. So that's right. I just love that. Built for sincerity. Okay, well, do we have any other days, Billy, or is that the most of them? Those are the most of one. I mean, you guys might like White Wine Day. I like White Wine. You guys are sparkling. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I didn't We're go sparkling there. gals. Yeah, exactly. But everybody else out there, go have a nice glass of Sauve Blanc and listen to the podcast. And eat yes. a cookie. And eat a cookie. Ooh, delightful. All right, well, mm-hmm. that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Today's case will test the question, is violence ever vindicated? We've talked about vigilante justice before, and we've urged those listening to never take the law into your own hands, no matter what. But in one way or another, we can all imagine a hypothetical scenario where we can imagine going after someone who hurt one of our loved ones. People can be driven to do almost anything if the sting of betrayal is so great, or if we're gutted by a loss so painful that revenge is the only option. Today's episode should act as a warning and reminder to would-be criminals everywhere. You should never justify causing harm in any capacity, because the justice system and written rules of punishment may not be the only penance you're forced to pay. Remember, when you harm others, children especially, there's always that chance you could pay with your life. So the setting for today's case is Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and it's the state capital. It sits an hour away from New Orleans. Back in the 1600s, the French called this area Les Baton Rouge, meaning red stick, because it marked the boundary between two different tribal hunting grounds. 
Excellent pronunciation, William. Thank you. I know. Very fancy. So today's case spans a pretty broad spectrum of time. So we're going to refer back to the mid-80s, 1983 and 84. So songs topping the charts were Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, Every Breath You Take by The Police, Jump by Van Halen, When Doves Cry by Prince, and Footloose by Kenny Loggins. Ooh, that is a whole string of hits. Yeah. I know, but wait until you hear the movies. The movies oh, are no. just crazy, yeah. This was just the best time ever. The movies and theaters included The Outsiders, Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, 16 Candles, which is one of my all-time faves, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It was what a time to be alive. Yes. Absolutely. And our first degree today is Jody Plache, who is now 49 years old. But like Jack just said, we're back in the early 80s when Jody was just 10. It started when I was in fifth grade. I was in class and at the, you know, they hand out forms for like extracurricular activity. Well, I got a form for karate lessons, like 10 karate lessons for you know, $39 or whatever it was. And I crumpled it up literally and threw it in the garbage can. Well, my younger brother, he was going to elementary school in the same school district. He brought the flyer home. So my mother saw the flyer and was like, oh, that would be good. We could put him into karate. Jody wasn't interested in karate, but his mom, who was named June, was interested in keeping her sons busy after school. So she enrolled Jody and his brothers in a Hapkido school, which is for martial arts and karate. So my mom was like, well, I'll put Mikey in karate and I'll just put Bub and Jody. Bub is my older brother and Mikey's my younger brother. So we'll put them in the karate together. And so she signed us up. And also her best friend, her son signed up too. So it was a force. We go to one of the lessons and it, I mean, it was real basic. And we go back to the second lesson, like a week later or a couple days later, well, the guy doesn't show up. We go back for the third lesson, he doesn't show up again. The program's regular karate teacher was AWOL, so new one was hired. The organization that had sponsored this karate lesson turned the names of the people over to this new karate instructor named Jeff Doucette. And Jeff called, got in contact with the families, and said that he would honor these lessons that they had already paid for. And if they liked it, they could continue on. Karate teacher Jeff Doucette was 24 years old and originally from Port Arthur, Texas, which is about three hours west of Baton Rouge. So here's a little background on him. He was one of seven kids. His father was a service station owner. Jeff actually dropped out of school in the ninth grade and eventually moved to Baton Rouge. And upon his move, he was a pretty lonely guy. He didn't really have any friends or family in this new city that he just kind of picked up and moved to. Teaching karate was Jeff's main source of income, but he also had a side hustle of laying down carpets with his brother, who was based back in Port Arthur, Texas. But it was karate that became the center of Jeff's life. He even lived in the quarters at the karate studio. He immersed himself in the lives of the students he taught. He became friends with the families and created his social circle that way. So here's Jeff in an interview about martial arts talking about the sport. Arm bars, wrist locks, and chokeholds that come from judo. Jody, by all accounts, really enjoyed his new karate instructor. You know, we thought it was, it was pretty cool. I mean, he had, he had a real karate studio or dojo. I mean, he had mats on the floor. He had uh, another area with like a heavy bag. And I mean, it was, a, it was a gym. It was a training gym. So we thought it was, it was pretty cool. So, you know, we had fun doing it. And as it turned out, Jody and his brother showed tremendous potential in the sport. So after a couple of lessons, Jeff goes to my mother and he's like, look, your kids are really athletic. They're really good. 
you know, we have a competitive fighting team. They possibly could join it. And it just so happened they had a tournament coming up this particular weekend, and he invited all the kids, you know, to go see a movie called They Call Me Bruce. It was a karate movie. So Jeff told Jody's parents that he was taking the students on the competitive fighting team to see They Call Me Bruce. He said that it's something that they do before any tournaments is they go out for pizza, they go watch a movie, you know, and then they travel to, I think the tournament was in New Orleans, they're going to travel to New Orleans and fight the next day. But this is something that they do regularly. It's what the fighting team does. Jody went to that tournament and excelled. And then he went to another and then another. And as Jody remembers it, karate became a central part of his life. And even his parents got to know and trust their karate teacher, Jeff. Jody recalls one particular night when Jeff arranged for a group of his students to go to the famous Chuck E. Cheese. And who doesn't love to go to Chuck E. Cheese? Uh, loved it. Love Chuck E. Cheese. Loved it. We went out that night. We went to Chuck E. Cheese. It was the first time my dad got to meet him. And, you know, you're, I'm 10 years old. My brother's seven. And we're running around Chuck E. Cheese. We've just seen a movie. It, it, was, it was great. Now, this is every kid's dream. Jody is hanging out with his brother, his karate coach, who had opened this world up to him, and his parents are getting involved too. So he was stoked. And as the Plaché boys got more and more involved with karate, Jeff became more and more of a fixture in the family's orbit. You have to remember, Jeff is only 24. He's a young guy and he doesn't know anyone in Baton Rouge. So we're sure he's thrilled that his family is welcoming him in and he's getting this sense of community that most people crave. Jody's parents were 39-year-olds Gary and June, and they really liked Jeff. And the boys saw him sort of like an uncle figure. One particular time Jody's dad, Gary, brought Jeff home with them for a family dinner and gave him spare clothes to change into. And after that, Jeff would start bringing the boys home from karate. He would take them to tournaments as well as other fun activities connected to the fight team. There was real trust built between Jeff and that family. But on February 19th, 1984, that trust would be shaken to the core. On February 19th, 1984, it was a Sunday morning. He asked my mother to board a car. This is how close this family had become, borrowing each other's cars and things like that. Jeff told Jody's mom that he didn't have his car because his brother dropped him off and that he needed his car because of some business dealing with having to do with laying down carpet with his brother. So Jody's mom, June, said, sure, borrow the car. Jeff said he'd have the car back soon. And then he left. But he brought Jody with him. They did meet up with Jeff's brother, Mike, in Port Arthur, but it definitely wasn't to conduct any business. We drove out to his brother's Mike's house, grabbed some clothes and a sleeping bag and other stuff, and we took my mother's car from Gonzales, Louisiana, to Port Arthur, Texas. And that's where his mother and sister lived. That's where he was from. Okay, so why the hell is Jody with Jeff on this excursion, and what exactly is going on here? Here's Jody on what happened next. We stayed with his mother that Sunday night, and then the next day we went to another part of Louisiana looking for money, basically, because he didn't have any money. Okay, so let's unpack some of what is going on here. Jeff has borrowed the car belonging to the mom of a little boy that he teaches karate to. He takes said little boy with him, but they don't go where they said that they were going. They grab clothes and camping equipment, and then Jeff takes Jody out of state. And we assume that right now, alarm bells are probably going off in your head and have been for some time now. They're going off in ours too. 
But remember, it's 1984, and it's unclear at what point Jody's parents would have realized that Jody was actually missing. And it's not like Jeff had a cell phone that they could call at any time of the day. So at this point, just imagine the paralyzed state of Jody's family. Who do you call? What do you do? And how the hell do you track down your kid? Okay, and last time Jody spoke, he said something about Jeff driving around and looking for money. So let's unpack that a little bit. So here's the thing that no one could have known. Jeff had a history of fraud, and he's young, so no one's expecting him to have this. So he had tried to get his students to the national karate circuit by selling LSU mugs and tiger rags to football fans in the area. Seems super wholesome. This is like sporting stuff, little like memorabilia, little like accessories, shit you'd buy at like a gift shop at a stadium, right? So mm-hmm. seems pretty wholesome. I'd buy a mug from a cute kid in a karate uniform if they were selling it to get to a competition. But here's the thing. People would buy them, but no mugs or or things that they bought ever arrived. So this is a great mug caper that occurred. But in addition to that, Jeff had also passed bad checks in the past. So in fact, he was supposed to appear in court on the very same day he asked to borrow Jody's mom's car on February 19th of 84. So speaking of Jody's mom's car... What do we think Jody's parents are thinking at this point? So they also don't have their car and their 10-year-old son is missing. Luckily, though, Jody's parents had received word at this point about what was going on, and it put their minds at ease ever so slightly and briefly. But this call did not come from Jeff himself. So that Sunday night, Jeff's mother called my mother and said, Jody's with Jeff. Don't worry. He's bringing him home tomorrow. Okay, so my mother wasn't too thrilled about that. Yeah, no mother is going to be thrilled about this. And you could put yourself in Jody's mom's shoes. You're trying not to be upset. You're trying not to think the worst and give Jeff the benefit of the doubt. And remember, Jody had gone with Jeff on overnight trips countless times for karate-related purposes. But this time was different. This wasn't a set, you know, trip that everybody knew about. It's not really a surprise that at first, while annoyed, Jody's mom, June, didn't really freak out about this. Something to note about this time in the lives of the Plaché family. Jody's mom, June, and her husband, Gary, had recently begun the process of separating. Right, and dissolving a marriage is obviously a very potentially painful and a contentious chain of events, and it cannot only be a huge distraction, but a very stressful event for literally anybody involved. So in an effort to help, Jeff would do things like drive Jody to and from karate class, and that was a huge help to his mother, June. And Jeff and June had developed a close relationship over time, one that pivoted into a friendship as well. Sure. And the depths of June and Jeff's relationship are not super clear, but a lot of media reports describe their relationship as intimate, although it's not written anywhere that anything ever turned physical between them. But I think from the position of optics... They were closer than what anyone would expect. What we do know for sure is that there was a lot of trust built between Jeff and the Plaché family by this point, especially with June. So it lends itself to this whole idea that she's not freaking out at first. Like she doesn't think the worst of this guy, at least in the beginning. Well, and this kind of reminds me a little bit of Abducted in Plain Sight because... The abductor in that movie was one of the family's best friends. They built so much trust in him. Everybody had a relationship with him differently. Um, but the main, you know, underlying thing is they they trusted him and he took advantage of that trust. Right. And the naivety that people had back then because they didn't have things like true crime podcasts or or shows like Abducted in Plain Sight to watch, 
there were so many niceties too. Like you didn't want to accuse someone if you were wrong. Like it was mm-hmm. just different. You didn't think that these people were lurking around. And I'm sure back in the day, people cared a lot more about um, their perception and how everybody saw them. So for you to like publicly kind of accuse somebody of doing that, it would reflect poorly on your character. Not saying that they were doing this in that situation, but probably a lot of families back in the 80s and even earlier in the 70s and 60s wouldn't Mm -hmm. dare let anybody know what was happening behind closed doors. Yeah. And having grown up in the 80s, you know, I remember there was actually a teacher that was that I'm getting very Jeff vibes from. And then he would really? do things like take kids out on trips. And then he would do like an, a cross-country trip every year with these kids. And parents would let him. And at one point, I believe he was starting to like... Like he took me and three other friends to a Harlem Globetrotters basketball game. And... I you know, like he was going to potentially ask me to go on this trip. And my dad's like, there's no freaking way in hell you're going on this trip. But my dad had been to prison and everything. So he knew how bad shit was out there. But right. you're right, though. There wasn't like a lot of stuff out there that was it. But other people were just letting their kids go on these trips with this guy. Remember, it's the 80s. Like they were pretending gay people didn't exist yeah. or yeah. That, that they were choosing it. And it was this like reckless choice you know it's like to suggest that your son could be abused by your teacher it was just like they could not go there well and it's the same thing that we talked about recently i can't remember which podcast it was in but it's like the whole stranger danger was like so huge and Mm -hmm. you could never assume that somebody that you knew would be the person that could ever do something bad to a family member when in reality again it's like the most likely suspect is going to be somebody that is close yeah, to you. And this is when all, you know, obviously all these things that were going on with priests too. That's the other thing that I'm starting to think about. And then scout, mm-hmm. scout leaders and all that. Yep. Totally. And so there's something else we want to revisit real quick on the heels of something Jody told us. So this whole idea that Jeff's mom called Jody's mom to tell her that Jeff and Jody were together and Jeff had him and there was nothing to worry about. This is weird. This is some weird shit. Like why does Jeff's mom... Why is she cool with the fact that her 20-something son is toting this little boy around? And, you know, as it turns out, Jeff had actually introduced Jody and June to his mom several times. Like, the trust building went really, really deep here. So, you know, Jody's mom, June, receives this call from Jeff's mom. And it's like, oh, yeah, don't worry. Jeff has Jody. And it, it probably put her mind at ease for a bit. That being said, though, we're learning behind the scenes. It's all a lot more incestuous than it appears. And Jeff's mom had even watched Jody on a few occasions, which meant that Jeff's mother would have known all about the relationship and at least known who Jody was. So it was Sunday when Jeff's mom made that call to Jody's mom, telling June that Jeff would bring Jody back on Monday. Well, surprise, surprise, Monday came, Monday went, and Jody was not returned. That Monday, we went to his uncle's house in Denton, Texas, looking for money, to borrow money to get some bus tickets to get us to California. California. Looking for money? What the hell is going on? He was telling his mother he was taking me to New York. And his mother helped him get some money, gave him his older brother's birth certificate. So when he got to California, he could get a driver's license under his brother's name. Again, with Jeff's mother, you know what the fuck is happening? And we're going to revisit her a little bit later. But what we have now here is Jeff trying to steal his brother's identity and his mom is helping him. He's lying and saying he's taking Jody to New York when he's really going to California. 
So certainly by now you've picked up on the fact that we're not telling you a story about a guy just committing mug fraud or bouncing checks. There's some dark shit that is going on here. And trust me, we're going to get there. But by this point, Jody has not been returned when he was supposed to be, and his family was fucking pissed. And they were probably afraid. And they had no idea that Jeff was taking their little boy to California. So despite their apparent love and loyalty to Jeff, they knew what they had to do. She didn't call the cops immediately because, I mean, she had known Jeff and she had had no reason to believe that Jeff was going to take me to California. When I didn't come home the next day, that's when I guess she called the cops later that afternoon. So as soon as Jody's mom, June, got the cops involved, the real search for this missing child began and it exploded into a national search. Meanwhile, Jeff had ditched June's car in Texas and his mom, surprise, surprise, Helped him get money, so Jeff and Jody were on a bus headed to Los Angeles. We took a bus from Orange, Texas to Los Angeles. And that Tuesday morning, my mother and members of the Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office, they drove to Port Arthur to go find me. And they just missed us. The days kept passing, and the seriousness of the situation kept escalating. So by now, Jody had been missing for a week and hadn't spoken to his mother in seven days. Jeff, meanwhile, had shaved his beard and dyed Jody's hair from blonde to black. It would later be revealed that Jeff began referring to Jody as his son to strangers they would meet. We get to California. I went a week without speaking to my mother. So Jeff was like, look, call your mother, let her know you're okay. So I did that. I called my mother, let her know I was okay. We were saying we were in New York, and at least she knew we were okay. Meanwhile, they're taping the phone conversation. She's got the sheriff's deputies there. She's got police at the house. He's telling her what to say, trying to keep him on the phone as long as possible. They're recording the calls. By now, a national search for Jody was underway. The police were trying to keep Jody on the phone as long as possible because they wanted to trace the call to identify their location. Officers knew about the relationship between Jeff and June and used that to their advantage. They had June tell Jeff, Gary might use this to get custody of all the children if you don't bring Jody back. Jeff responded, if the court gives Gary the kids, I'll get them from him. This is starting to get insane and really scary. So he's in California, in Anaheim, California, literally a block from Disneyland. And he called my mother collect. And after that phone call was done, my mother asked for time and charges. The operator came back on to tell her how long the call was and how much it was going to cost. And that's when Mike Burnett with the Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office got on the phone and said, look, this is a federal investigation of a kidnapping. I need to know exactly where that room came, call came from. Uh, they told him room 38, Samoa Motel, 415 West Catella Avenue, Anaheim, California. Jeff and Jody were at a Super 8 motel right near Disneyland, which is so ironic because that's supposed to be the happiest place on earth. Law enforcement now knew exactly where they were. And while June still had Jeff on the phone, the FBI and officers were on their way to rescue Jody. She could literally hear what was going on. She recalled those moments during an interview with ESPN. I hear this banging on the door, and it, the guy was yelling, break, break, police. And I heard the phone hit the table, and I could still hear them, get up against the wall, get up And then boom, it goes dead. Jody recalls the moments of his rescue as well. So they sent in a, a team of police officers, FBI, and they busted in the door and they arrested him and they took me out. And that's the last time I ever saw him alive. 
Jeff was pulled from that Super 8 motel, arrested and charged with the aggravated kidnapping of Jody. And during his arrest, Jeff phoned a friend to tell him he was only guilty of bad judgment. He was denying what was being said of him. Jeff had also told a friend that he was using Jody to pressure June into joining him in California. All bullshit, by the way. He was then taken to the Orange County, California jail. And by now, the media had taken hold of this story, especially in Jody's hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So when it, I was kidnapped and I was going to be returned to New Orleans on March 1st, they had a camera crew there filming me being returned and being reunited with my family. Once Jody's parents were reunited with their son, they were so relieved that he appeared unharmed outwardly. He was unscathed. At least that's how he appeared. And at this point, we haven't addressed the pressing question of why Jeff abducted Jody. And we're going to tell you right after the break. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun. FX's new international spy thriller The Veil starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge. Inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. TheRealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Eleven-year-old Jody Plachet had been abducted by his 25-year-old karate teacher, Jeff Doucette. After being gone for more than a week, the police zeroed in on a motel in Anaheim, California, after tracing a phone call Jeff made to Jody's mom. Once Jody was safe, he was questioned by police about what Jeff had subjected him to. And Jody, surely confused, surely in a state of shock, had shared very little about his ordeal with the police. So I decided I was going to keep my mouth shut and lie and not say nothing until the hospital report came back. And then I decided I was going to tell the truth. That way, if Jeff came after me and saying that I told on him, I can say, no, you got yourself caught. To be clear, Jody was taken to the hospital and checked for signs of abuse. And what he was saying is that he lied when police asked him what happened because he knew the hospital test would reveal the truth. And clearly, he was under Jeff's control, and he was designing the scenario in such a way that he didn't have to overtly tell the police what Jeff had done to him and what Jeff had been doing to him for upwards of two years now. Jody knew evidence at the hospital would speak for itself, and it did. They took me to the police station and questioned me. Then they took me to the hospital to have a rape kit done to see if I, you know, I had been sexually assaulted. So I knew that rape kit would come back positive. But they had to test it at the lab first. So I decided I was going to lie until the test reports came back. And then I decided I was going to tell the truth. And that's exactly what happened. I knew that the hospital report would come back showing evidence that Jeff had his DNA inside of me. We didn't call it DNA back then, but, you know, his DNA would be inside of me. The truth was that Jeff Doucette was a disgusting, pathetic pedophile a predator hiding behind karate garb and masquerading as a mentor and a good influence on the Plaché children. As Jeff was leaving the Orange County Jail, he had spoken to law enforcement and he said something to some of the FBI and Baton Rouge deputies. And this is a direct quote. I want to tell you about it, to having sex with Jody and all the gory details, unquote. So he's smug, he's unapologetic, he's sick-minded, uh, he's terrifying. He also admitted that he had abused other children in Baton Rouge, but he refused at that point, at least, to elaborate on which children. I fly home March 1st, 1984. I think it was March 9th, a little over a week later, where Mike Burnett with the Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office came to the house with the hospital report and told my parents the hospital report came back positive with spermatozoa on the rectal slide. So they knew that Jeff had fooled with me. And so, you know, they started crying. Jody's father continued to express anguish to Deputy Mike Barnett, a law enforcement officer who worked the case. And my dad said, I'm going to kill the motherfucker. 
And Mike's like, Gary, look, I understand. That's how most parents respond. And that was their reaction. It was to, to cry, to be upset, and to say he was going to kill him. Okay, so how long was this abuse going on? How did it happen right under everyone's noses? Jody had been in karate for almost two years. So, you know the drill. We got to go back to the beginning. Here's how it started. Two years prior, when Jody and his brothers first started taking karate classes with Jeff, Jeff always made sure to procure very fun experiences. Everything around Jeff at that time was, everything was positive. We were having fun. We were learning karate. We were going to the movies, hanging out for pizza. It was, looking back, that's obviously a grooming tactic. But, you know, he was doing his job grooming very well. For those who have never heard the explicit definition of grooming, grooming is the action by a pedophile of preparing a child for abuse in one way, shape, or form. We've all seen to catch a predator. Some of them do this via the internet. Some do it with children they have access to, like in this case. Eventually, after they've gained access and started to procure the fun activities, they start to test boundaries. Looking back, he gradually made it to where part of our stretching, if I do a split, well, he would help us do a split and he would be holding the inside of our, our thighs to kind of balance us. And I mean, that was his way of kind of introducing, you know, him being able to touch my private area without me raising any flags. So looking back, that probably is when he started his grooming. Jeff slowly started to double down. When he went to the next level, we were coming home from karate school practice one day, and he was letting kids drive the car. He had a 280ZX, it was his, his quote-unquote girlfriend's car, and he would, he would do the shift, and we would steer, and we would go around the block in the neighborhood. And that's when he first, or when I first really noticed him putting his hand in my lap, on my penis, and, you know, just like, whoa, what's going on? But it, it went away real quick. Like, it, it was something that was kind of sudden, where it could have been brushed off as an accident. And things progressed from there. From there, it gradually went on to, to more uh, fondling. He actually, we were going crawfishing, and he had gotten a hotel room the night before. There was always, like, seven or eight kids around. So there'd be four kids in one bed, and then three kids in another bed, and Jeff. But Jeff would always put me on the outside. So he could turn his back to the other two kids, and he could do things that they couldn't see. And that, this particular night, he literally rubbed my penis raw while I laid in bed trying to pretend like I was asleep. And that's when I was like, okay, now I'm sure it's not an accident. Jody didn't say anything. He was a child. He was confused. And obviously, what's happening here isn't something an 11-year-old mind can process. And then it was like a couple weeks later, we were in Houston. He said, I'm going to basically I'm gonna suck your dick. That's, that's quote, unquote. And uh, I was like, why? Like, I didn't know why he wanted to do that. And that night, that's exactly what he did. He followed through on his promise. Jody's mom had actually warned him about sexual predators. She had shown him a PSA-type film that warned of the dangers of these types of criminals. My mother made us watch it, and she watched it with us, and she told us, she said, look, there are people out there that'll do bad things to kids, and if someone ever does anything, you can tell me, it'll be okay. So she had warned me. So in my brain, I'm thinking, this is one of these people mommy warned me about. But I'm still 10 years old, and I knew if I told, it would upset my parents. 
Despite knowing what Jeff was doing was wrong, Jody's young mind was afraid of upsetting his parents. You know, this is how children think. They will keep pain and abuse to themselves as to not upset adults. And children rely on adults for everything. They're vulnerable members of society and sometimes pieces of shit like Jeff Doucette exploit this to their benefit. And to that point, the abuse continued. It was a month where he would just perform oral sex on me. Jeff would do this boldly during karate practice. He'd have everybody do a jumping jacks and karate flips and push-ups. And I would go, he'd send me off to the bathroom. Then he'd have somebody else leave the class. And then he'd perform oral sex with me. And he, he did that for about a month. Then he just basically told me he was going to have sex with me. Not in those words, but that's basically what he told me. And then that's what he started doing. Predatory. A monster. But in the meantime, we're still doing fun things, going to the movies, going to the mall, you know. So there is that kind of cognitive dissonance where you're like, okay, I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't want, I don't want to be around him, but he's fun to be around. But what was the catalyst for Jeff to kidnap Jody and take him to California? The answer to that question comes in two parts. The first is that Jeff was slowly securing more and more access to Jody. My parents split up, and that allowed Jeff kind of more access, or, or, you know, he would offer, oh, I'll bring him home from Friday practice, you know, you get to take, you cook dinner, whatever. My mother had to get a job, she had to go work cleaning houses, so it just gave Jeff a little bit more access to where he was around us a lot more, and a lot of people thought, and basically from my dad telling everybody, that Jeff and my mother were a couple. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, okay, even if they weren't, doesn't give him any right to have sex any with any of my mother's children, okay? But they weren't. But it, it, it had that appearance where I can see where people would think that, but my mother and Jeff did not have a romantic relationship, I can assure you of that. Again, with a confusion about June and Jeff's relationship. They looked like a couple and had the optics of being a couple, but according to those closest to the case, they were never actually a couple. Outwardly, Jeff presented himself as someone you could trust and someone who came from humble means. But really, he was dealing with severe money trouble. He was trying to scam people out of money, and he was always claiming that it was for the kids. And we can't forget the ongoing court case for which he was supposed to appear the day he left with Jody. But following Jody's abduction and Jeff's subsequent arrest, Jeff had been exposed as the true predator he was. Jody had finally been rescued from his grasp, and slowly, he could be on the road to healing. This entire family needed to recover from this heart-wrenching betrayal. Just imagine being Jody's parents. Here's his dad, Gary, talking to reporters the day Jody was returned to them at the airport. As a parent in your position, did, did you learn anything from this? Yes, how much I love my children. Uh, I might be a little bit more protective or overprotective. I don't know. On March 1st, 1984, Jody was welcomed home by his parents and siblings. In the video, they are hugging each other and they're touching Jody's face. And you have to understand, there had to have been a moment where they considered that they might never see their son again. And you see in the video, Gary and June brush their hands through Jody's hair, which, remember, was starkly different to them because it had been dyed black. Here's audio of June at the airport. Where's that gorgeous blonde hair? Are you okay? Honey, are you okay? Once my mother sat me down and informed me that they knew without a reasonable doubt that Jeff had basically had sexual intercourse with me, seeing my mother calm, I was kind of shocked, but I admitted it. I fully admitted what had happened and told her how long it had been going on for. 
and all the things that he had did to me. And she was still calm, so I still talked. It felt like the weight of the world had been left off my shoulder. I knew for the first time in over a year I could go outside and play with my friends without having to be questioned and answer about where I was and what I was doing. So I, I felt like a kid again. I felt wonderful. I felt like I felt like all my problems were behind me. But ultimately, that was not the case. That wasn't the case at all, because the truth was, this was only the beginning of the story. So there was, a, there was about a week between when my dad found out about what Jeff had done to me and ultimately what would eventually happen. You already know that this is a two-part episode. Jack so wonderfully <laughs> informed you of that in the beginning, for those of you who like to listen to them all, you know, in succession. But we're not monsters, and we're going to give you a hint as to what happens in part two. And my dad said, I'm going to kill the motherfucker. And Mike's like, Gary, look, I understand. That's how most parents respond. And that was their reaction. It was to, to cry, to be upset, and to say he was going to kill him. And guess what? Jody's father, Gary, does as he says. All right. Well, a huge thank you to Jody for being with us uh, this episode. He will be with us next week as well. Um, until then, if you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Jack Fanick, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at the first degree. Please join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the search bar. We are talking true crime all the time. And then also some not true crime killing time type of things. And speaking of killing time, check back tomorrow in our feed for a brand new episode. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. Keep your friends close. But, but not that, that close. close. Oh, so good. Happy cookie day. White wine day. Oh my god, cookies. Yeah. Service dog. Happy birthday, Billy. Thank Happy you. birthday, Billy. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing an additional writing by Taylor Rogers, and producing by Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode are ESPN, The Advocate, The Washington Post, Associated Press, among others. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.